lots of littles make a big. That is the key for me is just to remember that lots of little problems make a big problem, but lots of little efforts make a big positive impact. What do we need to know about microplastic pollution and how it impacts our health and the health of our natural ecosystems? Why do we need to be wary not only of microplastic fibers shedding from our clothing and textiles, but also the natural fibers that shed from our clothes as well? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Arbor Teas, for helping to make our work possible. Arbor Teas is a small family-owned organic tea company driven by sustainability in all of its practices, from the sourcing, packaging, use of renewables to power its operations, and more. I'm excited to share more about their work later, but for now, to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the co-founder of Rosalia Project for a Clean Ocean. Through this nonprofit and the research that they've done over the years, after learning more and more about the pollution of our oceans, plastic pollution, and the microplastic pollution, she then started Coraball, which is a consumer-based solution to preventing the microplastic fibers shed from our clothing and home textiles from washing down the washing machine drain to then go on to pollute our waterways. I feel like we've been curious and eager to dive in to the topic of microplastics for a while, so I'm really excited to finally get to do so today and also with someone who is such a wealth of wisdom on this topic. Green Dreamer starting off with what inspired her love for nature. Here's Rachel Miller. I am a water person, pretty much entirely. My <laughs> husband jokes that I would be the first person eaten in the forest. I can't run even to save my life. But in the water, I feel great in, on, and above the water. So that for me is swimming, sailing, skiing, which is really just the frozen water version of a water sport for me. And just being near the ocean or lakes or rivers, that's where I am the happiest. Mm -hmm. So in that context, I have been lucky enough to spend a lot of my life competitive swimming or just happily swimming or sailing and on mountains. And so I think that fundamental love for the natural world or the natural watery world set the stage for what I'm doing now. Mm. And some specific experiences that probably triggered everything had to do with seeing trash in our waterways, whether that was on the beach or in the water or wrapping around my sailboat while I was racing. I've, I've had plastic bags wrap around the rudder, the thing that steers the boat. Uh. And that is slow and infuriating if you're <laughs> racing. Did you notice an increase in this type of pollution over the years? Before I was really, really paying attention, you know, while I was focusing on sailboat racing or other things. So before we started Rosalia Project, a nonprofit dedicated to working on the problem of marine debris and ocean trash, before that, I would say I was seeing a steady increase. 
And I think that it was just coming into my consciousness much more. Mm. And that is what led to Rosalia Project in a lot of ways. Right. And sometimes once you start seeing something, you can't unsee it anymore. So you just see it every time it's out there. What you just said is so true and so especially true for ocean trash. It's a, we've had people give us feedback that after they've come with us with Rosalia Project and have done these data cleanups and looked for solutions and done education programs, it's hard to go to any shoreline without seeing all the trash that's there. Even if when you get there, it looks clean. <laughs> there's nearly always something to be picked up. Yeah. So it sounds like this was when you started really noticing plastic pollution in general of our environment or just trash in, in the oceans. How did you come to focus on microplastics? Because you can't really see those as much. Yeah, no, that's such a good that's such a good point. So Rosalia Project, our nonprofit, started just almost 10 years ago. We're rounding up on our 10-year anniversary this year. And we had decided we would work on the problem of marine debris in the big picture and see where that took us. And so we addressed consumer trash. So that would be your single use items and beer bottles and stuff like that. And we worked with people looking at and investigating derelict fishing gear. We, we operate off the coast of Maine. So there's multiple fishing industries and a lot of gear associated with them that gets disconnected from where it needs to be. And, and that's a big problem. And we started working on microplastic in the context of looking at our urban harbors. So back in 2012 to 2013, we were doing studies of well, whatever was floating in the surface of our urban harbors. We just wanted to see what there was, what there was. And mm. what we found was nearly entirely microplastic. Mm. I think in testing 10 cities between East Coast, Chicago, and West Coast, we found one little sliver of paper. But everything else that we picked up in our surface net that we were using to collect this data was bits of plastic, little bits of foam, little bits of plastic fragments, and little bits of plastic filament or fiber. Are these just the microplastics broken down from bigger pieces of plastic, or were you able to capture tiny microfibers from our clothes in that study as well? That study was structured in a way that did not allow us to find microfiber from our textiles particularly effectively. We had designed it so that it was a study that could be replicated by education programs, whether those were high schools or summer programs. And that meant we weren't using methods that required microscopes or vacuum filtration or any of the types of methods that are required to see things that you really can't see with your naked eye. Mm. But the microfiber problem is fascinating because it really wasn't discovered and labeled until 2011 by a team at Plymouth University in the UK. And it didn't really get out into the news for another couple of years. So it really wasn't until 2012, late 12, 13, that it was starting, like that study was getting any real attention. Right. And it was right then that we learned about it. And we're like, wow, you know, did we see any of those in our <laughs> urban water study? You know, when there's a problem that just screams at you, it doesn't just like talk to you a little bit or speak to you a little, <laughs> it screams. And microfiber, when we heard about it, 
it just screamed at us. And combined with the experience that we'd had looking at the other types of plastics and not just plastics, but all the different types of trash that is all over our public waterways, we said, we want to be, we want to see if we can be part of the solution to this. We want to see if we can generate a solution to this and see if we can inspire other solutions while reminding people that our drains are connected to the natural world. I remember reading a study saying that 18 of 18 beaches tested around the world, they tested the sand and contents in the sand, and all of them contained microplastic fibers. And in that study, that was the first time I came to connect those dots, but they had implied that a lot of this may have come from our waterways and therefore tracing it back to our our laundry and our washing machines. You're so right. And that, I think, is what we hadn't read necessarily that paper when we first learned about it, but we had a feeling that that might prove to be the case, Mm -hmm. that these fibers would be ubiquitous, not in a little bit of a like, oh, it's all over the Gulf of Maine or it's all over some one part of our one big ocean, but that this is going to be a problem that's going to be found everywhere. Most likely today, everybody owns some items of clothing or have some textiles in their home that are made up of microplastic fibers. So it's everywhere at this point. Yeah, it's incredible. And you know, what's really interesting is this isn't even a problem necessarily of fibers starting as micro, but it's taking our lovely, fully intact, long fibered clothing, and those long fibers are breaking and becoming micro. What do you mean by long fibers becoming smaller? The long fiber isn't microplastic. It's just part of your clothing, how your clothing is made. So whatever you're wearing now is most likely not made of microfiber. It's just made of fiber. Okay. Very, very small diameter fiber, but that is woven with other really, really small fibers. And together they make a garment and they might make a spectacularly technical garment or a spectacularly beautiful one or stretchy one or whatever that's. It's pretty incredible what our textiles can do. But our textiles, they are proving to be vulnerable so they can break. Those fibers that make up our clothes start out as perfectly intact and and woven long pieces of, of fiber. But through a combination, we think of wearing them and everyday abrasion. And we think quite a bit of breaking that happens during the wash cycle, those long fibers start to break and they become the microfibers that we're talking about. And what do we need to know about how much of these microfibers shed from our clothing with each wash? Every month or couple months, there's some new good information coming out about shed rates. I think just what's important to understand is that we are not talking about microfiber sort of with a capital M, like a microfiber cleaning cloth or a microfiber liner or just fleece. This problem is something that it appears affects all textiles to a different extent. So some textiles are very resilient and don't seem to be breaking or shedding. And some textiles are not particularly resilient and seem particularly prone to falling apart in the wash and shedding these either fibers that were already small or bits of their longer original fibers. The second thing that's important to know, and just to keep aware of, is that this problem or the dangers associated with the problem isn't even necessarily 
restricted to our synthetic clothing, though our synthetic clothing clearly poses a little bit more urgency to keep out of our public waterways. But our natural fibers, the whole array of them, unless certified organic down to the dyes, they may be covered in some pretty scary chemicals and dye setting, heavy metals for dye setting and other types of optical brighteners and wrinkle releasers and all these other types of chemicals that are associated with textiles, period, whether they're made of 100% cotton or some other naturally derived fabric or original material, or they're synthetically derived. It's even bigger than just our synthetics. And that can feel overwhelming. Right. (laughs) There's so much to this. So it's kind of like in the food industry, everything that we eat or even packaged foods are required to label, you know, what's in this, what are all the ingredients in this. And even in, in our skincare products and beauty products, other than fragrance, which is more, you can't really tell what fragrance actually entails, but otherwise our beauty products mm-hmm. and skincare care products also have to indicate what's in them. But this is not true for clothes. Like people don't know what chemicals were used to finish our clothing. And oftentimes there's formaldehyde, which is a known carcinogen being used to treat our clothing. There's things like wrinkle-free synthetic azo dyes, a lot of things that we know to be harmful to our health in our clothes. But because we don't know they're there, we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that is spectacularly perceptive. You know, there's food and cosmetics that are required to tell us what is there because they come in contact with our bodies. And the fact is, is textiles come in contact with our bodies too. And I am with you. I think that there should be labeling laws that every ingredient that goes into a textile should be listed because of that factor, because we wear them on our skin. And that's the that's the best motivation. Obviously, There's the big picture environmental motivation that's important, too, to understand that those chemicals are potentially available to ride the wash water or ride on these little tiny bits of broken textile, which are microfiber, into our public waterways. And for that reason, it is important to know what's on them. So it's not just the microplastic fibers themselves that are problematic. It's the host of chemicals because microplastics are kind of like magnet for these chemicals. So it's all the chemicals that they're bringing along with them into our waterways. And also microplastics have been found in our food, our water, our beer as well. So I feel like it is quite a concerning large scale issue. It is. And it's fascinating and it's complex because there are some plastics that in and of themselves are inert when it comes to interaction with the human body, at least as far as we know. There's implants and things that go into people that that's made of plastic. But what has been shown and what was the inspiration for the ban on microbeads is that there is the potential for even what you'd call inert plastics to have persistent organic pollutants or additives or other types of harmful chemicals attached to them and make them available for transfer into the marine food web. And as soon as that happens, it makes them available to the human food web. Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) let's dive into solutions. So (laughs) you started Cora Ball, and I'd love to hear, like, how did you come up with this idea? Because based on what I understand of it, it's very fascinating how this was developed. 
I appreciate that. Yes. So zoom back to we're in Rosalia Project, our nonprofit. We're working on the problem of marine debris in different ways. We learn about microfiber pollution. We did not discover it, but we learn about it. It starts screaming at us. We say we want to be part of the solution. So we start thinking of ways that this problem could be addressed. And we realize that it's very front end. Nobody knows about this. It's extremely new in terms of knowledge and and consciousness across the board, science, media, consumers, everybody. And so we start looking at a way to give consumers some power to make an impact right away, while at the same time raising awareness about the problem and in so doing hopefully inspiring innovation, both upstream and downstream of consumers. We had some terrible ideas that didn't work at first. I give a shout out to 3D printing technology. That was a spectacular tool for us to keep iterating and having terrible ideas that were on the right track, but executed terribly (laughs) until we realized we kind of got a little stuck. When we got stuck, we decided to say, all right, what needs to happen? Very fundamentally, what needs to happen? And when we thought of it like that, we realized we need to keep the water flowing so that we wouldn't flood people's apartments. So water needed to be flowing around and out the washing machine. That's why we couldn't just use a normal screen or a sieve because these little these little pieces would clog it up in a in seconds. So we, especially with the tiny little, whatever it is, three quarters inch hose hoses, you put a screen on that, that would stop microfiber. You'd, you'd back up your washing machine nearly immediately Mm. without some kind of other system. So one, we needed water to flow. And two, we needed to catch little things from that flowing water. And what we realized is coral does that. Coral totally does that. It's stuck to a rock and yet it catches little things from flowing water. And so we use this kind of concept of biomimicry and inspiration from the ocean itself to design the addition of the Cora ball. We were just calling it a microfiber catcher in the beginning, unimaginative, but at least it said what it was, to guide the design change that ended up with something that started to really be effective. We did a little soft launch of the first edition of the, it was the microfiber catcher back then at the Georgetown University's Sustainable Ocean Summit in April of 16. So we're we're just a couple weeks from the three-year anniversary of the first time we really talked about it in public. It, it, it went, underwent another pretty significant design change, and that was based on feedback from the people who would use it. So customer, potential customer, user feedback, where people specified that they really wanted to be able to clean it themselves. Our first edition was sort of based on like a subscription program where the ball, which had an outer cage and an inner part, would would fill up and then you'd sign up for a subscription and you'd get an inner part. We'd, we'd send back the fuzzy one and we'd recycle it and all that. But people were excited to be part of the solution, but they didn't want to have to pay for it more than once. And we thought that was fair. So that's how the version that's out there now came to be is it's soft and you clean it just like you clean a hairbrush. So in terms of behavior, it's completely familiar and it it means that people are in charge. There doesn't have to be a subscription. You just buy one and you're good to go. 
So two questions. Number one, does the Cora ball itself shed microplastics? And number two, how do people, what do people do with the microfibers that it catches when they clean it? So first question, totally fair question. For us, that was a huge criteria when we were looking at both the design, but even more so the material. And the reason the Cora ball is more expensive than some people expect is because the material that we're using, a particular type of synthetic rubber, is extremely resilient and not likely to make microplastic. It moves with your clothes, not against them. So we're confident that it's not causing more fiber loss from your clothes. And we are also keeping a very close eye on its own potential to shed which per its specs is very low. We expect Cora balls not to show any sign of real wear or tear for five years of normal washing. Mm. The second question is, what do you do with the fuzz, right? What do you do with the fiber that you collect out of your Cora ball? For now, what we want people to do with the laundry lint that the Cora ball collects is the same thing everybody is doing with the dryer lint, which is throw it away. So right now, it is better to put it in our landfills. And the fact is, is that our landfills are better than just letting it go straight through wastewater treatment or out the drain. Mm -hmm. Someday, we are confident that we will find a partner who can take all of our laundry lint. The same stuff, what you get in the Cora ball out of the washer and what you collect out of your lint trap in the dryer. It's all the same, a real multi-material tangle of what is likely to be somewhere in the more than half is made of synthetics, but probably lots of different types of synthetic materials. And then somewhere in the less than half range, naturally derived materials with a good dose of human and pet hair thrown in. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I feel like with materials that are simpler, so maybe it's one to two materials tops, it's easy to recycle that. But when you're talking about a concoction of a lot of various types of materials in there, it would be really hard to recycle that, at least as of right now. Hopefully we'll have technology to be able to separate out those elements. You're so right. You're entirely 100% right. I mean, if you think about it, a material, there's some plastics that absorb water and change shape when that happens. There's some that repel water, so they do not change shape. There's some that melt at low temperatures and some that melt at high temperatures. And if you try to make something out of this mix, and then that thing is subject to any of those factors like moisture or heat or cold, it's very likely that that thing falls apart mm-hmm. because the materials that make it up are all acting differently and they just, they can't, they can't bind. Right. So we have had some luck in finding a potential partner who said, if we can prove that a fuzz ball is 80% polyester, they can make it into filament again. But we don't have any type of technology that we could use as a scanner or anything that could say, yes, for sure, this bundle of mixed material is 80% polyester. I am hopeful that all said, someone will figure out some really innovative way to take this material and and let it live on instead of just go to landfill. But trash can, especially in the US, 
and developed nations is way better than just letting it go. Well, we're really looking forward to new, exciting, and groundbreaking innovations to come. But with you having worked on this for quite some time, what's been your biggest challenge raising awareness for microplastic pollution and getting your solution out there? So interestingly, on the good side, on the super positive side, we haven't found, for lack of a better way to say it, we haven't found any microfiber deniers. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has seen an article of clothing go threadbare. And so while, you know, none of us, myself and our Rosalia project team, we, we of course had seen things go threadbare, but I never thought about where those threads had gone. So, and that's been the the response to most people is when we explain what the problem is, there's a, a like a dawning of realization, like, oh my God, that is happening. Of course that's happening. That's a real bummer that we are all implicated in it. So while I have done a lot of education around consumer trash, and it's really interesting to get a group of people who show up to a marine debris lecture, and they are recycling, and they're making an effort, and and it's amazing, because we believe that all that matters, but they often disassociate themselves from the problem of marine debris, because they are doing the right things, and, and there's a concern, but a disassociation. Now, with this problem, it's been really fascinating to come in and say everyone who wears and washes clothes is part of this problem. Mm -hmm. And it's really spectacular to follow that sentence up with everyone who wears and washes clothes can be part of the solutions. One of the solutions is the Coraball. And there are other solutions that don't cost anything like doing your laundry less frequently, making sure that You're just washing the clothes that need washing and not just kind of doing it out of habit. Those are the sort of good things. The challenge, our biggest challenge is that this is a problem that is literally made up of microplastic pieces, micro pieces, and they're by their own definition too small for the eye to see. And so the other part of this challenge is that we've counted over 60 variables that are related to your clothing and the laundry that would contribute to how much shedding is happening in any person's washing machine and how much the Coraball will catch. And so it's been a real challenge to match expectations and reality because some people's Coraballs don't collect fiber that you can see as quickly as other people's. Mm. And even in our testing, we knew that was gonna happen Obviously, in the real world, we're getting way more scenarios than we were able to during testing. And to that end, we have a a great survey. We worked with data scientists to set up a survey so we could just keep learning, keep learning to make sure that we generate best practices, that we understand who the customers for Coraball or the users for Coraball are that are going to make the most difference, and make sure that everyone who has a Coraball is patient or (laughs) understands that it may just, you don't just see something necessarily right away, although some people do. So number one, microplastic pollution is a complex topic and that alone can repel people because people like things that are simple and easy to understand. (laughs) And second, it's really hard to see it and out of sight, out of mind. So a lot of people might not even notice this as an issue because we can't see it. Yeah, that was a great observation for the first one. Another part of the problem is 
unlike microbeads, there's no one solution here. So microbeads had a spectacularly straightforward solution banning them. There were alternatives. The alternatives were not necessarily going to sink any business or have huge expense turned over to the customer. It was all very doable and a lot of groups worked very hard and very appropriately to get that legislation through. But with microfiber pollution, (laughs) I personally and our organization were not a believer in trying to ban synthetic clothing. I don't think we can feed and clothe the world on our agriculture alone, especially as we move into the next 20, 30 years. And that means that there's a place for synthetic clothing in the world, but it has got to be done better. Mm. So that means inspiring innovation in textile design and understanding what it is that makes our clothes able to break in the wash or while we wear them. And can we make our clothes more resilient? The other side is, can we make the washing machines gentler on our clothes in the first place so they don't break? Can we have an inline filter that doesn't cost a ton that is workable so that people will actually use it? And, and, and I think people are getting pretty close to that. There's a couple products out there that are, that are zeroing in there. And is it, and I think this is less likely because they've got so many issues to solve, but, you know, there might be a wastewater treatment opportunity that wastewater treatment systems and septic systems and, and those industries find some kind of innovation that can help capture these before they're, they're either mixed up in the sludge that comes out of a wastewater treatment plant or just go straight out into wherever a wastewater treatment outfall is flowing, usually mm-hmm. a river or a bay. So, I mean, today we have a lot of these beach cleanup projects for plastic pollution. There's this giant ocean plastic cleanup project right now as well. And those may be helpful for larger chunks of plastic. But when we're talking about microplastic fibers, they're kind of more impossible to to clean up retroactively. So how do you think we can move towards a more preventive system? I agree with you. And that's the way we've went with the Coraball is sort of stop the leakage type of a a strategy rather than a clean it up one, because you're right. I liken it to spilling a salt shaker on like on the beach and then trying to pick up each little grain of salt. It's not really something that at this point, until we can figure out some kind of special plastic magnet that (laughs) addresses all the different types of plastics, you're right. It's not super feasible. So we are believers in our collective ability to innovate. And and that's why I mentioned innovations that keep our clothes from breaking in the first place and keep fibers from flowing out the drains if they do or if and when they do break. And we are not talking actively about cleaning up microplastic from our public waterways at this point. So if nothing stood in our way, how do you envision a world with no microplastic pollution issues? I think that the way we get there, it does require those cleanups, first of all. I am a believer, and our organization is a believer, that cleanups work and that cleanups matter. Because when you move away from just looking at microfiber pollution from textiles, what you realize is that, for example, when we did that urban waters floating trash study, most of what we found in terms of microplastic came from something bigger 
So these little tiny fragments that we found of plastic and expanded polystyrene, so what you'd call foam or styrofoam, and even the filaments that we are mostly finding, they had broken off all of it, had broken off something bigger. And so that's one thing to say is in the perfect world, cleaning it up is important, but it can't be the only thing because if all we ever do is clean up, you know, it's that whole turning off the tap thing. So concurrent to the cleanups, we collectively start valuing every single object that we use, wear, touch, and really go for the durable, the sustainable, the beautiful. Because with that, those, that combination, there's less of a throwaway mentality that if you respect your objects that you use, we all need objects. But if if you can respect them, that they were made by something, some resource had to go into making them to get them to you and and kind of treat them with respect and appreciate them. Ideally, choose ones that are the lowest footprint possible to achieve whatever that object's goal is. Yeah, so it sounds like for us as individuals, we can just really strive to value quality over quantity in everything that we buy. Mm-hmm. So we're not constantly mm-hmm. buying and tossing things out or buying cheap things that may be more prone to breaking apart. You know, I look back and I understand that sometimes it's hard to do that. Sometimes financial restraints keep you from choosing the most durable of items. But if everyone just on a small level, you know, I'm, I'm such a believer in lots of littles make a big, really thought about the objects that they're buying and what's it going to do and for how long. And is it is it kind of cool? Like, does it make you happy to use or at least was made sustainably? I think that starts to make a difference because then you get what happens to people individually, but you also get that collective consumer pressure to require and sort of force manufacturers of all different sizes to hold their objects to a higher standard because the people that are interested in using them or who are going to use them are interested in that higher standard. Yes. And I don't think it always has to mean more expensive. It often does. So there, you know, we have to be sensitive there. But I think it it, it really works on multi-levels if we collectively do make these efforts. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on microplastics with us. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and your team. So what's next for you and where can we follow you online? As far as keeping track of us, there's two ways. So coraball.com is our Coraball website and we've got news and stuff like that. And you can sign up for a newsletter. We don't send a lot of emails out. We are looking at some events and things this spring and we'll keep everyone informed on our Instagram and Facebook. So they're both at the Cora Ball. And I'd love to invite your listeners to check out our nonprofit, Rosalia Project. That's Rosalia, R-O-Z-A-L-I-A, rosaliaproject.org. We just put out our call for crew. So if there are some passionate ocean protectors out there, the only requirements are, you well, you need to be awesome. (laughs) Number one. Number two, you need to be down with our mission to protect the ocean and conserve a healthy, thriving marine environment. 
and three, you need to be above 18 years old. But as far as your academic or professional background, we are open to everyone. In fact, we generally have people from every decade, from 20s to 50s or 60s on board. This is to be on board our research vessel. If our listeners here, they definitely qualify with number one and two. So I feel like as long as they're over 18, this would be a great opportunity to get involved. Great. And we just posted our call for crew and the expeditions that we are planning on doing in the Gulf of Maine. So all you guys, it's a volunteer position. You just need to get yourself to the boat somewhere between Kittery and Bar Harbor, depending on the schedule. And we'll take care of you from there. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to tell you more about our sponsor. Arbor Teas sources loose leaf and organic certified teas. They're the first and only company to package all their teas in backyard compostable packaging. Their operations run on solar energy and all their business efforts are offset by Carbon Fund. I really appreciate how thoughtful they are with everything that they do and also just love that they're a tight-knit and committed small team. They share lunch together every day, they compost everything they can at their facility, and just take into account how all their decisions impact the planet. To shop Arbor Teas Sustainable Organic Teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. In case you're on the go, I'll also have this linked at our website as well, so definitely check them out after. But for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication you follow? So I just started following Stunning Ocean on Instagram, and it's appropriately named. I love it. They just posted a video of these two humpback whales. Uh, It's amazing. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Lots of littles make a big. That is the key for me, is just to remember that lots of little problems make a big problem, but lots of little efforts make a big positive impact. What are you working on right now for your health? I am working on recovering from a knee injury skiing. That includes fat biking on the snow with these fat bike with spiky wheels to keep me from sliding, which is awesome. And still getting out to enjoy winter, which even though I love the summer and the ocean, winter is still my favorite season. What are you working on right now to live more sustainably? Making sure that when I buy something... I feel like it's durable, as sustainable as possible, and ideally somehow beautiful or pleasurable or fun to use. What makes you most hopeful right now about our planet? I think there's some momentum going on. The fact that you're doing what you're doing, the phone calls that I've been having from such a variety of people who are interested in the Coraball. So specifically, what gives me hope is that we have people from aquarium zoos and nature centers interested in it. We have people from clothing brands interested in eco shops where people are just looking to help other people find those objects that are durable, sustainable, and beautiful to help them live lower footprint. We get school groups. We just talked to some young people in the Netherlands who want to get balls in their dorms. And that sort of breadth of companies, there's other other companies, sports companies and all sorts that are that are getting in touch. That gives me hope. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I think for anyone who is trying to live a lower footprint lifestyle, it can get overwhelming and whatever it triggers, it's you know, it's all different things like the clothing issue or going to a beach that's covered in trash. 
remember that lots of little efforts make a big effort, that your effort does matter when it's matched up with what everyone else is doing. And I'll give you one very specific example that one effort can make a bit of a big difference is we calculated that one sort of normal size single use water bottle could become 39,000 pieces of one millimeter microplastic. But if we either never use it in the first place or make sure that the ones that we use or the ones that we find end up in recycling, you have just kept 39,000 pieces of nearly impossible to recover microplastic out of our public waterway. You multiply that by not very many water bottles or beverage bottles, and you realize that actually one person can make a very big difference because you never know which piece of trash is going to be the one that hurts a precious animal or down the line gets into our beer <laughs> and so, or honey or salt or any of that. And so my, my hope is that everyone who's listening to this, who's making an effort that you know that what you're doing matters. Whenever it gets overwhelming, just remember that your efforts matter and lots of little efforts will add up to make a big impact. Thank you so much for tuning in, Green Dreamer. If you've been enjoying the show, I'm first of all honored just to be able to be a part of your routine. And if you'd like to become one of our official Green Dreamer patrons, where you'll get bonus monthly Q&A episodes, access our Green Dreamer network and more, just head to greendreamer.com support. As always, you can find the two tweetable takeaways and the full show notes at greendreamer.com slash 124 for episode 124. Reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane, as well as on our podcast account at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>